0: The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes.
1: This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest.
0: And I'm Peter and Well, welcome back. So, Jackie, we don't have a guest this week, but we've got lots to talk about.
1: I think we should talk about some of these clean energy stocks. They've really run up. I know they've come off a little bit recently. But we want to talk about that trend, the history of clean energy investing, which actually hasn't Mm. been that good if we go back over the last few decades. And why it may be different this time. Are there some things that are going on today that look very different than those previous episodes that didn't turn out so well for investors?
0: Well, for sure, there's been a lot of boom and bust cycles in the equity markets for what we call today clean tech. And we'll even talk a little bit about the derivation of that word. But there's no question that the cycle is booming now, led by companies like Tesla, which has been at least a 7x in the past year. Actually, if you take it back a few years, it's like a 35X. On the renewable side, we've got Brookfield Renewables, a 1.5X. There's some battery companies too.
1: Yeah, and I would say all of those were peaks this year. They have come off a little bit from those peaks, but they're still up. I wanted to talk about this quantum scape. Hmm. This is just an example of some of the companies out there now. This is a solid-state lithium battery company with no commercial product yet. Hmm. And they did an IPO earlier in the end of 2020 with what they're calling a SPAC, which mm-hmm. is a special purpose acquisition company. We can talk about that. Yep. And their price of their stock went from $24 when they initially came out to over $114 or a 5X, like right away. Mm-hmm. It's fallen back now, but still it's two and a half times higher than the IPO. So this is a company that has a market cap that's like $21 billion, Wow. but they don't actually have a commercial product yet. Yeah. There is a plan to maybe use these commercially in electric vehicles in 2025. And, If this technology works, it promises to really make a big change in terms of the batteries. Like, these are safer batteries than what's used today. They could also provide much higher energy density, which means you can go further and for a cheaper price. So there's a lot of excitement about the technology, but it still has to be derailed. Well, this is
0: one of many. I mean, there's many companies out there in the public markets that have very high expectations and therefore very high valuations. And it's nothing new we want to talk about that. But you mentioned the SPACs. I think it's worth talking about that because these special purpose acquisition companies are effectively what they call blind pool public companies, where a group of individuals get together typically with previous experience and headline type names. They raise money into a public vehicle and that vehicle In other words, a stock and goes out and does an acquisition of a private entity, like a battery company, like an electric vehicle company or so and so on. Like these things are nothing new. Actually, Alberta used to be the world capital of SPACs back in the 1980s and 90s with what we called here junior capital pools, where a group of individuals would get together. They would raise a few hundred thousand dollars, maybe a bit more. Then they would go out and finance either an oil and gas company. And actually, in the 1990s, they financed junior technology companies. And the private companies get folded into the public. Once you become public, it's much easier to raise big dollars. And that's the step up, the graduation into the public markets. Because after all, the public markets are, in environments like this, a much faster way of raising capital.
1: Yeah, so really that's what it is. The traditional way of going into the public markets called an IPO process it involves this roadshow and it can take like a year and, mm-hmm. and there's all these steps to it. And this is just shortcuts to the whole thing. Right. And collectively, these SPACs have raised like tens of billions of dollars for clean energy related companies in yep. the last six months or so. So what it has done is it has enabled these companies to get a bunch of money quickly. And you know they want to mm-hmm. use that example of QuantumScape or others, is to develop their technologies. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. now they're instantly a public company. But they're a public company that doesn't necessarily have any revenue or or cash flow initially, but they have raised a lot of capital.
0: No, it's taken the initial fundraising and going through the regulatory processes out of the time scale for companies that want to go public and have access to big dollars. And there's no question a lot of these companies need big dollars to be able to commercialize their products and break into the mass market.
1: All right, well, let's talk about the history of clean tech and the rebranding, actually, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't calling it clean tech. We're already dating ourselves by using that word, because clean tech was a term used really about 15 years ago when there was a lot of enthusiasm in this space, and a lot of investors lost money during that phase. And so when you say clean tech, some investors say, I'm not going to invest in clean tech. So a lot of people are using words like climate technology, transition energy, ESG, friendly or new energy to escape what's associated with that past period of yeah. the big losses. Yeah.
0: Well, as I said, it's been boom and bust. And I've been around for a couple of booms and busts over the decades in this space. And initially, oh, about 25 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, it was actually called alternative energy or energy technology. The clean tech Name really emerged in the late 1990s and became dominant in the early 2000s. There's no question that a lot of these companies underwent a major boom and a major bust circa 1999 to 2002. Skyrocketing stocks, huge expectations, and then plummeting down to earth. You know, the round trip from $2 to $200 and back to $2. And so, you know, we're sort of seeing a reemergence of that. And if you go to investors who have been around over the course of the last two, three decades, they'll remember. And some of them still are very reluctant to put money into this space because they've seen the movie before. Right. And so this rebranding to climate tech comes. I have a big problem with that because a lot of these companies are not just about reducing emissions. A lot of them are about sustainability. A lot of them are about efficiency and just making our energy processes better. So I'm not sure it's going to stick. Actually, I prefer the whole energy technology because that's the space we're in. There's just technology emerging across all of our energy systems.
1: Yeah, that's true. And new types of energy, right? So Mm -hmm. there was an MIT paper, which we've referenced before in the podcast that talks about some of the mistakes made during that time And basically said that venture capital and clean tech was the wrong model for clean energy innovation. Because that's the other thing. A lot of the money spent at that time was really early stage technology. And and we'll talk about maybe why that looks a little bit different this time. But let's talk about that. Is this another bubble like we saw back then in the making? There's definitely been a lot written on that. There are companies that are valued very high. And even though they raised all this money, it may be that their technologies aren't going to work. And that they aren't going to become commercial viable technologies. And in those cases, I think some investors are probably going to do poorly. Mm-hmm. But will the whole group do poorly? That's the question.
0: Well, there's always winners and losers in these sorts of things. You know, you have uh, the big buildup, you have investors placing lots of, I'll call it bets on many different technologies, therefore many different companies. Leaders start to emerge, standards start to be set, and then you have the leading companies move forward and the losing ones backwards. And I mean, you know, the hit rate in these sorts of things is one in 10 if you're lucky. And right. It's probably in this space, it's probably more like one in 20.
1: Yeah, or, for that really not. early stage technology. Yeah, right. I actually, yeah. It's
0: the, the odds are even worse than that. I think investors go into it knowing that for the large part and we'll see how it all rationalize itself. You know, we're not here to make stock picks, but I would say that some of the areas in the energy landscape as a whole, have very, very high expectations. There's a lot of pricing to perfection, as they say, and we'll see. We'll see what happens as we go forward.
1: Mm -hmm. And enthusiasm, though, there's some real good reasons for it. Mm -hmm. So we'll go through some of them. Sure. I think compared to back then, this movement to low carbon, net zero 2050, or whatever you want to call it, sustainable development scenario, looks to be more of a structural change. You know, consumers seem to be demanding it. Companies like big public companies like Microsoft Mm -hmm. and whoever are saying that they want to become a net zero 2050 company. They're putting out milestones about where their emissions will be in 2030. And this is a real change from back then. So the draw for these types of products and the desires for these types of products have really grown. And it's not only companies. We've got governments too, like Canada legislating net zero 2050. Obviously, the U.S. and Joe Biden has plans to aggressively move towards net zero. And even corporates in the power sector, for example, a shout out to Transalta who committed to be a net zero company recently mm-hmm. here in mm-hmm. Alberta by 2050. Enbridge also made a commitment. We've got companies like United Airlines saying that they are going to invest in direct air capture. And just recently we heard Shopify is going to do the same thing with direct air capture. So there seems to be just a lot of demand for these types of products.
0: There is a lot more demand. I mean, I think that is a structural difference between today and The last real big boom we had in this space 20 years ago, there is a lot more corporate support, not only within the energy space, but also, as you pointed out, the companies like the Amazons, Shopify's, United Airlines, and so on. And there is a broad-based impetus to reduce emissions and therefore find different energy technology pathways.
1: Mm -hmm. And and want to buy this thing. So back Mm -hmm. in the 2000s, there wasn't really the consumer draw like there is today, and I think that will enable some of these mm-hmm. new companies to find clients that can test and mature the technologies faster than maybe occurred there in the last cycle. There wasn't the consumer
0: cycle. draw, but I would argue that there was a fair bit of policy back then, especially in jurisdictions like California. We had the zero emission vehicles. They called it the ZEV. There was all sorts of other policy initiatives, but a lot of them really fell by the wayside because of the lack of corporate consumer interest at the time.
1: And, and voter interest, right? And, and voter yeah. interest. Because ultimately, the policies have to be supported by consumers, voters. Mm-hmm. And here with the corporates, we're getting maybe more longevity to these goals because they're not going to change with each political cycle, potentially, right? Because potentially. Because the company that commits to it may stick with it, even if the mm-hmm. CEO changes And I wanted to talk about a few specific examples. Sure. Apparently around 15% of all long-term agreements for clean energy now come from corporates. And there's been a steady increase, and we even had some examples here in Alberta. For example, RBC has now become the first Canadian bank to sign a long-term renewables energy power purchase agreement in Alberta. So they're partnering with some companies here in Alberta to build a utility-scale solar farm.
0: So explain what they're doing. They're getting into these agreements— to purchase their electricity from a renewable energy provider to net out any fossil fuel-based electricity that the bank consumes?
1: Yeah, so RBC may consume electricity across the country, but they're going to support this solar farm here in Alberta and say, well, even though I'm consuming some electricity that does use fossil fuels, maybe like in the Maritimes, I'm offsetting that by Mm. investing in this project that's generating electrons that wouldn't have if I hadn't supported it.
0: As a side note, we did do the podcast, I don't know, several weeks back about how Alberta has become an attractive place to set up solar and wind because of its deregulated power markets.
1: Yeah, we had that Green Gate power on with mm-hmm. Dan telling us about that. So there's one example of a corporate making, a, I don't know, they don't say the duration of this, but often they are beyond 10 years, right. sometimes 20 years. So the other specific example I just touched on it is this air capture, which I find really interesting because... Direct air capture is basically capturing CO2 from the air, like it says, and sequestering it. And the advantage of this technology is if you're like United Airlines who signed up for it, your jets are flying around the world. So you really can't capture the CO2 directly from your activities, right? So what you do is you capture it from the air and offset an equal amount of emissions. Ultimately, when they get to Mm -hmm. 2050, that's what they want to do so that they're able to sequester the CO2, so therefore their planes aren't adding any net new emissions into the atmosphere. And Occidental Petroleum has a really unique opportunity that they're pursuing. So Occidental Petroleum in the Permian actually already had CO2 injection going on, but the CO2 was coming from geological reservoirs, and then they were putting that into their oil reservoirs to enhance their oil production. Mm. But what they're going to do is switch from taking that, geological source of CO2 to taking it from these direct air capture units. And they have put some really aggressive goals in terms of where they want to get to as a company by doing this. They want to have by, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think it's 2040, no more direct emissions associated with their operations. And by 2050, scope three emissions will also be zero. So they are able Mm -hmm. to not only reduce their direct emissions, but the emissions associated with using their products. And on top of that, they're selling to other companies that they could use their right. facilities as well to store CO2. Right.
0: So you've got a couple of dynamics going on. There's the dynamic of airlines and engine makers for the airplanes making more efficient engines to use less fuel. You've got the dynamic of potentially in future running the fuels off of biofuels, hydrogen, even electric short-haul planes, etc. And then this dynamic of taking out of the atmosphere what you've put into the atmosphere as a consequence of your engine. And what's interesting about that idea, because uh, the Permian in Texas is an ideal reservoir, so too are the reservoirs here in Alberta. I mean, we spent over a century mapping out the geology. We know exactly where we took the hydrocarbons out, so we know exactly where to put the carbon back in. And that's a huge opportunity because a lot of industries that are big emitters and that have difficulty in making a switch to new futuristic technologies have to find some way to take the carbon that they emit out of the atmosphere to become net zero. Yet they don't necessarily sit on geology that is conducive to sequestering, injecting back into the ground. You know, they're in granitic rock mm-hmm. in the Canadian Shield or or wherever. So, the ability to be able to capture and sequester the CO2 for places that have geological pore space is going to be a big business.
1: It is. And, you know, the thing about direct air capture is it is expensive. There are many different estimates, and we don't really have a commercial large scale operation going on today. There's a pilot in Squamish, BC, but it's estimated it could be as much as $250 a ton US. I read that in an article about the project, which I can put a link through to. But, you know, that is expensive. But the thing is, it's actually maybe not expensive in context of some of these policies that are coming. Like example, for the Permian project is they are able to sell credits into the California clean fuel standard. And also there's some tax treatment in the U.S. Hmm. So actually, although expensive, the policy may support it. And I would say in Canada, with the high carbon tax and the clean fuel standard, you know, our policies are moving in the direction to support that. Mm -hmm. And it's much simpler. It's expensive, but the cheaper option is to find a large emitter somewhere, capture their CO2 at their stack. And then carry that CO2 hundreds of kilometers to get to a place where you could store it. And there's a lot of different parties involved, and it's complex. And the other thing is a company like United Airlines or the other company, Shopify, the large emitter wants to take credit for storing that CO2, so they really can't participate in that whole value chain. Mm -hmm. So this way, they can just put this direct air capture unit up, take it from the air, and not have to get into the complexities of sharing emissions and All the different parties that are involved in a traditional CCS project.
0: So getting back to 20 years ago, as I mentioned, there was a lot of policies that uh, eventually were just overturned or forgotten or modified to the point where they didn't really act as an inducement for the new technologies to get adopted, the new processes to get adopted. And what we see today are the policies. So there still is policy risk. There's no question, depending upon the government that gets elected. Having said that, though, we're seeing corporate actors get on board with this regardless of policy, it seems.
1: We certainly are. These are the few really specific examples with the companies that are supporting renewable energy development, which is Mm -hmm. pretty mature technology and Mm -hmm. fairly low cost. And now we're starting to see it on the CCS side for the first time.
0: Right. So we've got some early movers. Others will follow. We've got the financial community that is demanding more ESG from corporate Canada, corporate America. So I think that uh, there's definitely differences today. That doesn't mean the expectations aren't lofty, but at least the expectations are built on foundations that are more solid today than they were, I would say, 20 years ago.
1: Well, uh, now point two is companies have a lot of access to capital, and I think that probably was the case 20 years ago too. Not only have they raised tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, if you Mm -hmm. look collectively at the sector over the last six months, but you've also got potentially a lot of stimulus money coming. Mm -hmm. So for example, after the financial crisis, about 350 billion was spent on clean energy Mm -hmm. globally, and already about half that much has been committed. And there is the expectation that we'll see more stimulus spending this year. And Joe Biden has pledged to spend as much as 2 Mm -hmm. trillion just on clean energy. So the magnitude of capital could be just a order of magnitude higher as what it was back then. And all that money should result in more successes, should
0: it not? On this front, I'm a little more skeptical than most. The reason being, first of all, a lot of countries are getting tapped out in terms of their stimulus. I mean, there's been a lot of stimulus that's broad-based into the economy already, like the Joe right. Biden's $1.9 trillion plan. and all Oh, the plus other, all the other stimulus plus, plus that Trump all, and, had. And yeah. so there's that. And then The stimulus does lead to inflation and the inflationary fears are growing. Right. And you throw more money and you just create the situation where the pull on resources, the pull on just capacity as a consequence of all this money being thrown at different things just creates much higher costs. And I think that the policymakers are worried about that. So I don't know if you're going to see that much more stimulus money coming in. You'll see some for sure, mm-hmm. but we'll see.
1: Yeah, I know it's a good point because uh, with this latest almost $2 trillion, right, as the U.S. Is, uh mm-hmm. really put out a lot of stimulus money already, and none of it directed at clean energy, or not none of it, but there's fairly small amounts directed at clean energy. Yeah,
0: and maybe they don't have to, and in the ideal world, the government's funding is only seed capital that we see corporate America, corporate Canada, corporate Europe, etc., lead the charge.
1: Mm -hmm. I think one thing the governments can do, especially in the U.S., is create supportive policies, right? They don't Mm -hmm. have a price on carbon or some of these things that maybe would accelerate the adoption of some of these. All right, let's talk about the next one. This argument is the fact that while there are still some real emerging technologies that are at early stage, there are many more mature technologies that are really ready for scale up and growth Mm -hmm. compared to back then. So if you think about renewables, Down 80 or 90% from 10 years ago in terms of their costs, and arguably some of the cheapest source Mm -hmm. of electricity. Battery costs are way down. Biofuels are better understood. CS is established, I would say. There's operating plants here in Western Canada, for instance. Grid and smart devices have evolved and are really ready to scale up. EVs, I would argue, are ready for greater adoption. And so There are segments of the clean energy space that look a lot more mature than back then.
0: Yeah, they do. There's a learning curve effect going on with the ability to manufacture at scale a lot of the componentry that is going to go into these new energy systems. There's still the infrastructure side of it. Some of the infrastructure has to be built out. A lot of infrastructure either has to be renovated to accommodate more electrification and built out. That type of renovation, I would argue, is not so conducive to learning curve effects and cost reductions. So I'm a bit cautious on thinking about costs coming down as much as some people are going to say. And then on top of that, we heard a few weeks ago from Simon Moores from Benchmark Minerals how 80% of the battery cost in an electric vehicle is raw materials, whether it's graphite, lithium, nickel, you name it, of different mixtures depending upon the battery. But regardless, if the raw materials go up in price, then the cost curves don't come down nearly as fast. Potentially, the cost curves curve upwards.
1: Yeah, no, that's the thing. The pull on the resources to support this is going to probably create some slowdowns and bumps in the road, um, and things aren't going to maybe go as fast. So
0: technology and process innovations definitely driving down the costs. With some of these things, scale, lots of capital coming in, those are necessary ingredients. However, the raw material inflation is definitely something to watch for.
1: Okay, my final point here, we already talked about it, is policy, so I don't think we'll spend too much time on it. But I think the government policies that put a price on carbon that levelize the playing field, because hydrocarbons mm-hmm. are cheap, and price of oil and gas has gone up a little bit recently, but they're still relatively cheap compared to some of these new energy solutions. So I think it's really important that we get those types of policies. A great example is back in, it was about 15 years ago, the Alberta and federal government made big bets on CCS here. And they put government money, hundreds of millions of dollars, into the projects we have today. But they did not put a price on carbon that created a real economy, right? So we put the government money in. That's as far as it went. It didn't take off because what you need is a price on carbon that gets the private capital coming in and starting to invest. Yeah,
0: well, the prices on carbon that are being proposed and implemented are definitely high enough to get things moving in some of these other areas, like the renovation of infrastructure to put in CCUS, to build out infrastructure like hydrogen, and so on. The question is how that price of carbon is going to trickle through to the consumer and to what extent the consumer ultimately whether it's a corporate consumer or an individual consumer is going to pay for it
1: right and if they're going to accept that and 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 vote in the government after you know i
0: point back to 20 years ago that same zero emission vehicles standard the zev standard that was california was pitching and You know, it added a certain cost to the price of each vehicle because back then it was much more difficult to make a zero emission vehicle, whether it was battery electric or fuel cell. And the automakers pushed back and basically said the consumer, my customer, is never going to pay for this thing, so you can't do that. You're going to hamper our auto industry. A lot of the rules were relaxed as a consequence.
1: Yeah, because if it drives up prices and it becomes unaffordable, there's generally not acceptance of it. All right, I want to finish off to talk about the oil and gas industry, There is a lot of costs being layered on the oil and gas industry Mm -hmm. because of these policies, making it more expensive. And I think that is very different, whether it be the carbon price or the clean fuel standard or bans on building new pipelines or inability to raise capital where the Mm. clean sector can raise capital. Do you think that is a big difference this time versus back then? It
0: certainly is a big difference. It's imposing a lot of restrictions on the industry. So it's only major source of capital now is cash flow, which at $65 is going to be fairly healthy. You know, the interesting thing to me is is that the low price periods, we've talked about this before, has caused the oil and gas industry globally to reduce their cost structure quite dramatically. Here at home, the industry is consolidating to become more competitive and lower their costs. So, you know, every time there is a policy layer or restriction that's being put on the industry that serves to increase the cost of their product, they're reducing the cost to offset it. The price of a liter of gasoline hasn't really changed that much after a decade of a whole series of barriers. The only thing that's really happened is that the ability for the industry to access equity capital is severely hampered, but now the industry is demonstrating it can operate without equity capital.
1: Right, it can generate it, enough it, it cash flow. Yeah,
0: cash. so it's going to be more of interesting to watch over the course of the next decade to see to what extent these higher carbon taxes are going to affect the consumer and therefore the demand for the product. But the other thing it's done is, is it's created the belief that the oil industry is going into the sunset And as a consequence, we are seeing a lot more excitement and a lot more capital being directed towards the new energy technologies. And that is a fundamental difference today as compared to 20 years ago. Just the sheer volume of capital that is being allocated towards clean tech, energy technology, whatever tech you want to call it, alternatives to the traditional energy systems that we have been with for the last hundred years so as a consequence of that i would say we are in a period of change and transition it's just a question of which companies are going to be the winners and losers as we go forward
1: well i'm sure this won't be the last time we no. talk about this topic we'll revisit it but in summary obviously a lot of enthusiasm around clean energy or climate energy or whatever you want to call it new energy Things are different. Some things are different. Some things are the same. But we'll be tracking how this goes and visit it again in the podcast over the course of this year.
0: Fantastic.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us.
0: For more ideas and insights,
1: visit arcenergyinstitute.com.